seated. Can I stick this here for a second? Good morning. Good morning. I heard you all singing. I know that it's louder than that. Well, this week is our last week in our summer. Ah, always forget. Children, grades K through three are invited to be dismissed for children and worship. And they were running to the door because they thought I forgot them. So now that children are dismissed, it is our final week of our influencer sermon series going through first and second Samuel and now into first Kings. And the title, as you may have seen, it's uh, something like this, but I got back from vacation about eight or nine days ago and looked at our, uh, our planning thing online and it just said, September 1st, foolishness, Mike J. So... Inspires a great deal of confidence, obviously, that when they think of foolishness, they think of me. But uh, we want to talk for a little bit about what foolishness means, because we're going to use this term, we're going to use it in a biblical sense, but foolishness, I feel, is one of those things that all of us can recognize, even if we can't always define it. And so as I was trying to think of, you know, what's what's an example, a really easy example we can all agree on of foolishness? I thought of a trend on the internet this summer, which should be the first indication that it's probably foolishness. But the trend was this. You would Google, you would type in, if you're a man, you type Florida man. If you're a woman, you type Florida woman. And then you would type your birthday and see what article pops up. And that would be kind of your... So I did that for September 1st. And here are the titles of articles that came up. The first one was Florida man sent to jail for giving girlfriend a wet willy. Now, if you don't remember what that is, that's when you stick you know, your finger in your mouth and stick it in someone else's ear. Children do that to each other on the playgrounds. Apparently, this man went to jail for it. And my, yeah, and my wife said, if I tried it, the results would be about the same. So, but I think there's foolishness. I don't know which way you're seeing foolishness there, but it's in there somewhere. There's some level of foolishness there. Uh, the second one is this, and I meant to ask Daryl between services if you'd ever seen anything like this before. But Florida man tries to swim away from police subdued by algae. So he tried to get away from the police by swimming, which, by the way, even if you're Michael Phelps, you cannot swim faster than a cop can run. But then he was subdued by algae, and the police had to help save his life from the algae and then arrest him. So... Uh, that's foolishness. We can all agree. When we see that, we're like, well, that is foolish behavior. But, but that doesn't quite give us a definition yet. And that's kind of what we would call maybe even everyday foolishness. And foolishness that some of us are even prone to commit. Uh, but in the Bible, foolishness, and this is a quote from a Bible dictionary, foolishness is most often an ethical concept, and it goes beyond a lack of native intelligence. Although the fool might be one who acts boorishly, naively, or imprudently, and here's the key, he is more particularly one who lacks the wisdom which comes with the knowledge of God. Someone who in his pride is wise in his own eyes, but acts contrary to the will of God, and thus does, intentionally or not, what is evil. So it's not about when the Bible calls someone a fool, it's not an insult that we hurl at each other, to insult someone's intelligence, 
You're saying if you're living foolishly, that's neglecting the wisdom that God has given to you in relationship. You see the difference? Now, you know, that probably still applies to the two articles I pulled up, but it goes beyond that. And this morning, we actually have a very uh, sad passage of scripture in 1 Kings 11. And we're going to get to that, but it's about Solomon, King Solomon, who was decreed wise early on, given the gift of wisdom, is acting foolishly. And so it's not that he isn't capable of thinking it through intellectually, it's that morally he has chosen to go away from what God has told him to do. And the big idea here is what we're going to see is God's law is given for our benefit, and the pursuit of that law results in wisdom. Neglect of that law results in sin and what the Bible calls foolishness, and it has the consequences of sin. So foolishness is not a victimless crime as we'll see in the passage this morning. So I'm going to invite you now to turn with me in your pew Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11, which will be on page 291. It quick turns very quickly into 292. 291. I'm going to read it to you. It will be on the screens, and I'm going to pray for us real quick to get us started. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word and the wisdom that is embodied in it. We pray now that you would provide us with your Holy Spirit to help us read and discern and learn uh, from what you have written for us. And uh, just pray that you would convict us of our own foolishness and lead each of one of us into wisdom and righteousness. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So First Kings 11, 1 to 13. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the east mountain in Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. So it's not, it's not a happy passage at all. This is the third king we followed. It was Saul, 
Started out pretty strong, ended pretty poorly. David, kind of highs and lows, but generally high, more high than low. And then Solomon has now done all these things. And we're going to talk about what Solomon has done wrong. And I'm going to warn you, we're going to list all the things he's done wrong. And this is not a Sunday where we're just coming in to beat up on Solomon and his foolishness. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Solomon's foolishness and see what that shows us about our own foolishness. So, don't get on a high horse yet, or ever, today. The first thing that we see in Solomon's folly is Solomon breaks God's law for marriage. Now, God gives a commandment for marriage in the Ten Commandments, but he also uh, reinforces it later in in, uh, Deuteronomy, specifically dealing with kings. And what God has commanded here, we read it just now, uh, and it might not sound great to the modern ear. Because what he says here is that they're not to intermarry with foreigners, people from other nations, other, other, other races, other nations, other nationalities. And that doesn't sound great, does it? We can admit that. It doesn't sound great on the surface to the 21st century person. However, what we need to remember is that the entire context of scripture, God is not against multiculturalism, multi-ethnicity. In fact, that's his ultimate vision for his people in the New Testament and actually beginning all the way back in Genesis chapters 11 and 12 with Abraham. He says that his people are to be a blessing to all the nations, to all the families of the earth, and eventually will comprise all the families of the earth. So what is this commandment about? It's actually more about compromising your religious and spiritual identity. He's not concerned with ethnic or national purity. He's saying, if you follow these women and you start adopting their gods, you will be led astray. You will not be worshiping the one true God anymore. And that's God's concern. And this is interesting because I read this passage a few times this week as I was getting ready. And then I read it this morning before I was preparing for first service. And I noticed that the word heart appears very frequently. I didn't do a count But if you have a Bible and you're someone who likes to mark it up, you can really get to the meaning of the passage very quickly by circling key words that pop up over and over like that. And in this passage, it's the word heart. Now, don't do that if you're holding a pew Bible. But if you have your own Bible with you, by all means, circle the word heart. And it's interesting that even after all of these terrible things that Solomon has done, verse 9 says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because of his 700 wives, his 300 concubines, what does verse 9 say? And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And so, you do not have to have 700 wives and 300 concubines to have your heart turn away from the Lord. In fact, most of us can do it with relative ease. And so, that's what God's command is about here. His, his law for marriage is broken by Solomon, who, by the way, is supposed to model God's law for his people, and instead is breaking it for them. Now, some people will kind of rush to his defense and say, well, they weren't real marriages. That was kind of a political arrangement that was common back in the day. You would seal a peace treaty by taking a wife from there. And it's like, well, you know what? And now this is one of my favorite quotes from a seminary professor of mine. But he said, you know, whatever is common seems normal, and whatever is normal seems right. So whatever is common seems normal, and whatever is normal seems right. Now, did Solomon learn from God and in Scripture that it was okay to have 700 wives? No. That's not in there. I checked. 
But that is what the other nations around him were doing. So he thought, that's fine. That's what is common. That's what's normal. Therefore, it must be okay. It must be permissible. It must be right. And here's the other thing is that polytheism, which is the worship of multiple gods, was actually also pretty common in the ancient world, except it normally works this way. If your nation gets defeated by another nation, you adopt the conquering nation's gods. But the reason we have this list of all of uh, all of Solomon's wives in verse 1, it's Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. If you read First and Second Samuel and Kings, those are all nations that Israel conquered. So even with what's normal, even by ancient political standards, his behavior is weird. There's no reason for it. It doesn't make political sense. It doesn't make spiritual sense. And there's now a word that I'd like to employ to describe it. It's foolishness. It's, it's folly for the sake of folly. It's just foolish behavior. And it's not just foolish by God's standards, although that's what matters and that's why we're calling it foolishness, but it's just foolishness for the sake of foolishness. Not even a political advisor back then would have advised this behavior. So the first thing Solomon does is break God's law for marriage. Second, he breaks God's law for kings. Now, how many of you have attended the Gospel Project at some point in time? That's our middle hour class and we have kind of groups there. Okay, so a good number of you. And in that time, you went through Deuteronomy which means repetition of the law. That's the name of that book. And when you read Deuteronomy, you think, some of this stuff is so detailed. Why is this in the Bible? Let me show you why. He gives instructions in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, in case you're curious, for how kings are to behave. And in that passage, he commands that kings, specifically kings, not have many wives or accumulate excessive gold or silver because... And there is a because in there, because these things will distract him from God, who is his first love and his calling as king of his people. And so it says, don't accumulate many wives and don't accumulate tons of wealth for yourself. And what two things was Solomon doing? More than any other person in Israel's history, he accumulated wealth. He had so much gold and silver and horses and chariots and all of this wealth and God warns that you don't do that because it will turn you away from God. And what happened to Solomon? It turned him away from God. In fact, it turned him toward idolatry. Now, idolatry is a term that in the Old Testament uh, typically means you carve, you know, statues of other gods and you bow down and worship them. But if you look at the heart of idolatry, now it's interesting. I have a quote here that just came to mind as I was as I was talking about this, but. When you look at the progression of the kings in Israel, there's a quote from a, an English pastor a few centuries ago, and he said this. He said, faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. Being faithful led to prospering, and once they were prospering, they loved the prosperity so much that they forgot about the faithfulness that got them there. Now, that's true of individuals. That's true of nations. You can read through the world's history and you'll see that cycle again and again and again. Faithfulness brings about prosperity and prosperity overshadows faithfulness. And you wonder, how did we get here? And that's that's how you got there. And that's really how Solomon got there because there's two reminders in our passage this morning that your heart has turned away from me, not like your father, David. So you think David's faithfulness brought about your prosperity and you've grown to love the wealth more than God. 
And once again, you don't need all of Solomon's wealth to see that. But an idol, uh, is here's a definition for you from a, a favorite author of mine. It says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. End quote. So he says an idol is anything that you look to, anything you value more than your relationship with God, anything you value more than God, anything that you look to to find meaning and security and purpose and, and comfort in, in life. Now, this chapter is one of those chapters where we're reading about such horrible behavior from what is supposed to be a godly man that it's very easy to read this and feel superior to Solomon. Because very few of us sit at home and carve idols to bow down and worship. I have never spent an afternoon on the front porch whittling a piece of wood to make Asheroth so that I can put him in my living room and worship him. I just, that's not how I spend my time. However, however, if I looked at your bank statement, or if I looked at your calendar, would I find an idol there? Is there something in your life that takes so much of your time and so much of your money that you are obviously looking for significance in that thing? Now, most of us, now I notice no one wants to volunteer an answer to that. But most of us will be guilty of idolatry in some form there. We will find something in our lives that drives our behavior that we think will provide us security, that we think will provide us happiness other than God himself. And if you want to find it, do an audit. Look at your, look at where your money goes and look at where your time goes. Those are the two most precious resources in 21st century life are time and money. And if you want to see where your, what your heart is chasing after, see what your money and see what your time are chasing after. And so your questions for yourself is this. Are you, like Solomon, seeking after the same things as your neighbors who aren't living for God? Are you more swept up in the American dream in terms of how to define a good life than how God defines a good life? Do you measure your success and your failure in the same way as your neighbors who do not know God? That's a real question. And that's a question that Solomon fails that test, but most of us actually fail that test as well. And so that's the second trap of Solomon, the second folly. Solomon breaks God's laws for king. And then finally, Solomon falls into the trap of wanting to be like other kings, wanting to be like pagan kings. And if you actually look through Israel's history, if you look at the book of Judges, they had these judges appointed to rule over them. At the end of every chapter, it says something like, and at that time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what they saw fit in their own eyes. And the book of Judges is basically Israel recording the history, but begging God to give them a king. It's like, why can't we have a king? All the nations around us, our seven bordering countries, all have kings. And they have kings who sit on thrones. They're physical kings. They're real people. They can go see them. They can talk to them. And God says, no, I'm your king. And then in 1 Samuel, he says, they've rejected me as their king, so I'm going to give them a human king. And how does that go? Well, Saul is your first one. He starts out okay. Then he ends up trying to kill his successor, David. Then David, a man after God's own heart, commits adultery, does all of these wicked things. 
basically assassinates someone. And then you have Solomon here, who is so wrapped up in wealth and prosperity and marriages that he has completely neglected the throne of Israel. And after Solomon, by the way, the nation of Israel splits into two nations, never to be reunited in Scripture. And so Solomon's actions may seem inexplicable to us who are, if you just sat down because you're doing the Bible reading in a year type plan, you read First Kings 11, you're like, this doesn't make any sense. No one would behave this way. This, you know, and that's in, in, in uh, screenwriting. If you're doing movies, you have to have a character who makes decisions that the audience can relate to. Otherwise, you lose their interest. And Solomon is almost to that point here, except, except when we look at the entire context. And so Solomon, when we, uh, we'll look at Deuteronomy 17, the commandments given for kings, there is one more thing that he's neglecting as king, and that is he is supposed to remain as close to the people as possible. Now, that's not really common for kings in that era. He wanted to be more like the other kings in other nations, and so he built this amount of wealth that put him out of reach of everyone else in Israel, And he spent, now if you spend time with 700 wives and 300 concubines, how much time are you spending with the people of Israel? Not a lot. I haven't done the math, but there's not a lot of time left over. And that's that's his calling. His calling is to serve the people. Now everyone in the Christian life is called to serve those around them, and you can't do that from a distance. Service requires proximity. Whether you're King Solomon or whether you're a Christian living out Jesus' call to the Christian life. You have to remain close to the people that you want to reach and close to the people that you want to serve. Now there's a fine line between reaching out to be a blessing as we're commanded to do and share God's grace. And the line on the other side is spending so much time in the world that you forget about serving anyone other than yourself. If you spend so much time with the world that you adopt the world's standards rather than reaching out into the world. Now, you can't choose one or the other. You have to reach out into the world as a Christian, uh, as someone who follows after God and be a blessing to those around you and reach those with the gospel. But you cannot just go adapt whatever the culture is doing and bring it into your lifestyle. And as we move into the prophets in the gospel project, you're going to see a term that comes up a lot is syncretism. It's a term that means when people in Israel borrow and kind of cut and paste from religions and cultures around them and they just weave it into Israelite spirituality. There's this messy hodgepodge and that's what the prophets are all sorting out. They're saying, you guys are doing this right, which is a very little thing, and then you're doing all these things wrong. So, you know, calling them back to what God has given them. And if you look at the American church, you will find syncretism. There are many people who are living out values from our culture that are not in line with values of God. And so perhaps the worst part of Solomon's sin is that instead of protecting his people from idolatry and distraction, he led them into it. The one who's supposed to be guarding them is the one who built idols in Jerusalem. Now that's terrible, but once again, don't get on your high horse. You have to ask yourself this question or this series of questions. Am I, like Solomon, in pursuit of power and money? Am I so concerned with chasing after power and money that I'm not doing what God has called me to do? And whatever I'm pursuing, am I pursuing it with the tools and with the tactics of the world? 
Or perhaps you can ask yourself this question this way. If someone only learned about Christianity by studying my life, would they get it? Would they have any ability to reconstruct what Christianity is all about by looking at your life and studying it? And that, that question behind that question is this. Do they see me relying on God's grace or do they see me relying on the wisdom and the tactics of the world around me? And it's that fierce self-reliance that Solomon has fallen into and that so many of us are tempted to fall into that we can construct things with our own intellect or our own morality. We can build our own case for righteousness. And that's simply not the case. Now, I'm going to conclude with a story I read in a book this week. And uh, if I, this is like the coolest job title ever. But have you ever heard of a smoke jumper? Anyone heard the term smoke jumper? Okay, three of you, great. Um, well, you'll all be able to raise your hand after this. Smoke jumper is someone who fights forest fires. And they're called jumpers because frequently they will parachute in right to the line of fire and they will fight the fire and try to contain it. And <clears throat> in 1949, Montana's Man Gulch Fire, smoke jumpers parachuted in in what they expected to be called a 10 o'clock fire, meaning they jump in, and the fire is contained or out by 10 a.m. the next morning. But in this particular case, in 1949, the fire jumped across the gulch from one forested hill slope to the steep slope where the firefighters were fighting it from, and it chased them uphill through dry grass at 11 feet per second. That is how quickly the fire moves across dry dry grass, 11 feet per second. And so the crew foreman, a man named Wagner Dodge, yelled at the men to drop their tools. Two of them immediately dropped their tools and sprinted over the ridge to safety. One firefighter stopped fleeing and sat down because he was exhausted because he had never removed his heavy pack. Uh, another few ran with their tools in their hands still and they were caught in the flames. And all said, 13 firefighters died that day. And the Man Gulch tragedy led to reforms in safety, but wildland fighters still continue to lose races with fires when they do not drop their tools. And this actually happens across a few different professions. In four separate fires in the 1990s, 23 elite wildland firefighters refused orders to drop their tools, and they perished beside them. And man with the last name Rhodes even Eventually, when he dropped his chainsaw, he said it felt so unnatural to let go of the tool that he trusted in that he's trained to work with that when he looked to put it down, he was looking for a safe place to put it in the fire so that it wouldn't get consumed with flames. And then he thought to himself, what am I doing? I need to drop it and run. And so he dropped it and ran and he survived. And this happens to other people in Navy seamen who ignore orders to remove steel toe shoes when they're abandoning a ship sometimes drown or puncture holes in their life raft with their steel-toed boots. This also happens to fighter pilots who are in a disabled plane and refuse to eject. And the conclusion the author I was reading wrote is this. It is the very unwillingness of people to drop their tools that turns some of these dramas into tragedies. And the question for you, for me, for us, for Solomon today is are you willing to drop your tools of righteousness and run to Christ? 
Those things that we have learned to trust in, the things that we cling to for our hope, for our meaning, for our significance, for our purpose, for our righteousness, for our health, for our happiness, for our salvation, are you willing to drop those and run to Christ? Because if you don't, you'll never make it. You will never make it to Christ trusting in your own power, in your own tools for righteousness. And so are you willing to abandon your own attempts at righteousness and wealth and power and run to the only security available to you. And I'm going to give you this quote to close with. This is another pastor who I read a fair amount, and he says it this way. He says, Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Lord and Savior. We must admit that we've put our ultimate hope in both our wrongdoings and rightdoing, and we've been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get a hold of those things. So the Christian life is not just about repenting of our sin, but it's about repenting of our attempts to build our own case for righteousness. Because if you are able to build your own righteousness, then you don't rely on Christ. And Christ has provided all of the righteousness that you need to stand before God and be looked at and called holy as a child of God. And so the question for you today is, are you willing, are you able to look at the tools, the things that you cling to, the idols in your life, and drop them as you run to Christ? Will you please join me in prayer?